we're going through the book of Ephesians, um, and uh, we went through Ephesians 1, talking about the eternal purpose uh, and the blessings that we have through Christ Jesus, and then last week uh, we talked in Ephesians 2 about who we are, where we are, and who we are to become. And so Adam walked us through this process that if we really want to understand who we are, we have to understand who we were, right? That we are redeemed individuals by the blood of Jesus Christ because who was I? I was a man that was under the wrath of God because of my sins. And so when I understand that, I get who I am, and then that motivates me for who I am to become uh, in the eyes of Jesus Christ. And we're going to continue uh, going through uh, that message uh, today in the book of Ephesians chapter 3. So if you have that, that Bible there, you can turn to Ephesians 3. Um, so I, I, was, I was looking last night for, for great mystery series, uh, and, and I came across the, the two popular ones were Agatha Christie, uh, and the Sherlock Holmes, and I like Sherlock Holmes, I like the new movies they've done with Sherlock Holmes, I really like th- those ideas of how he puts it together, but the one that stood out to me, uh, as I was just doing a little bit of research, was Murder on the Orient Express. How many of you have seen that movie or read that story? All right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw out some spoilers here. Uh, now, I don't think it's it's unfair of me to do so considering I think the book was written back like in the 60s or 70s. Uh, Sean Connery was in it and was still just a young guy. So, you know, if you haven't seen it, you can't blame me. Uh, but as I was reading just through the, the plot line of it, it was, it was just it was interesting because somebody gets murdered and the detective has to figure out who did it on the train. Uh, and basically by the end of the story, right, you go through this whole story and he's, he's got all these people. There's 13 different possibilities who murdered this guy. You know, and there, there's all these different, well, it could have been this guy because of this. It could have been this lady because of this. And you're going through and I'm reading each one, I'm reading each one, I'm reading each one. And you're like, man, who is this person going to be? And in the end he goes, it's all of you. And I go, oh my gosh. That was crazy. I didn't see that one coming. I thought for sure, you know, it was going to lay out that it was this one particular individual and the guy was so smart that he figures it out. But the fact that all of them had a hand in this man's murder, uh, I thought, wow, that was, that's, you know, that was great. But that's what a good mystery story, I mean, here I am just reading the Wikipedia and I'm getting into this story. Yeah, I'm just reading, I'm getting into it. I didn't have time, right? I got kids, right? So, so I got, I didn't have any, I'm just going through, I'm like, ah, this is great. Um, you know, but, but people love mystery stories, and, and it's still a popular genre today of both movies and both literature. But I'll tell you what, one of the greatest mysteries that people still struggle with is why am I here? Isn't that one of life's greatest mysteries that are out there? I mean, people, people all the time talk about, well, I don't know why I'm here, I'm just here to have fun. But at some point when they come to grapple with the reality that their fun is no longer fun, they brings them to that point that says, I don't get it. Why was I made? For what purpose am I created? Is it simply self-absorption and self-pleasure? Is it to just be a kind and a good person and to do social justice? Right? And people grapple with this, and we've grappled with this through all of history, and mankind has attempted to fill this void of what that mystery is. And so we're going to talk about the mystery of the Bible. And Paul's going to lay out for us what this mystery is uh, in, this, in this passage of Scripture. Okay? So uh, chapters 1 through 3 are all about the theology 
of what God is in the book of Ephesians, and then chapters 4 through 6, and we'll get to those obviously next week, uh, is the practical outworking of that theology. So, so we're building, again, on this theology, right? We saw what God's eternal purpose is. Uh, we saw who we are, uh, who, who we are, and what we're going to become. And now we're going to see that there's this mystery that's been lingering out there through all of Scripture. And Paul's going to reveal that to us, but this is going to clarify what is the eternal purpose of mankind. Okay, so uh, let's start by reading there uh, in, in verse 2. I'm going to read through 2 through 6. It says, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery that was made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to man in other generations and has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and share together in the promise of Christ Jesus. So Paul lays out what that mystery is. Now, Again, the mystery is given to Paul by revelation. Okay? The Spirit comes upon Paul. It comes upon the apostles, the prophets, and clarifies, this is the thing that I've kept hidden for so long uh, and what was going to happen. Now, now, we know what God's purpose was. Okay? God's purpose, again, if we go back to Ephesians 1 and we look at verses 5 and 6, it says, He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Christ Jesus in accordance with the with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. And we also see the same idea again in verse 11 of chapter 1 and 12. He says, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his Glory. So the mystery was never why we were here. Okay? The mystery that we think, oh, this mystery is all about God's glory. No, no. God's glory already communicated that long, long ago. All right? We see that all through the Old Testament that everything is about his glory. That's not the mystery. And the mystery is not that he's bringing the Gentiles in, because we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 when he speaks to Abraham and he says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, and all nations will be blessed through you. So it's not that the Gentiles get to be part of this spiritual blessing. That wasn't the mystery. The mystery that Paul is talking about is how is he going to communicate it. That was the mystery that people didn't understand. We knew it was about God's glory, but how throughout generations was this going to happen? And this is what Paul lays out. And so the, the, the revealing of his eternal plan is this, that both Jew and Gentile, anybody that's not Jewish is considered Gentile, are heirs together of the promise through Christ Jesus. That is the mystery. Now, why are you saying, I don't, I don't understand, why is that such a mystery to us? Because we didn't grow up in a time period where we simply had what we would call the Old Testament. Right? I, I didn't grow up back when, when, when Egypt was still king. 
Okay, I didn't grow up in that time period. And so it's hard for us to grapple with this because we understand what God has already done. But again, remember, in the Old Testament, people were looking forward to the coming of Christ. They were looking forward to the coming of the Savior. And who had that scripture and word? It was God's chosen people, the Israelites. They were the one that had God's word. They were the one that God entrusted and said, you know, you're going to be my priesthood of a nation that I'm going to show the rest of the world of who I am. And that's the way that it always was. Okay. Now, this is why it becomes shocking. Because what Paul is saying, look, Jewish people, you are now going to be one with the Gentiles. Okay, well, that wasn't a big deal because Gentiles could become Jewish. They could have become baptized and they could have got circumcised and they could have been Jewish and they could have followed the law just like everybody else and believed in the Israelite God. Well, that's not shocking to us. So where's the shock value in all of this? The shock value comes in the fact that he says, you, you don't get it. It's not Gentiles are becoming Jewish it's that Jew and Gentile are now one, and you're becoming something completely different. Oh, wait, wait a minute, wait, say that again. The shock value is not that Gentiles are becoming Jewish, but it's that Jew and Gentile are becoming one, and they're becoming something completely different. And this is why, again, it's so shocking. Because when we get to the New Testament, we see throughout Scripture, the Jews are like, how dare you eat in a Gentile home? They're basically pigs. They're dogs. We are God's chosen people. How dare you sit down and have a meal with this? Right? The, Je the Jews didn't understand this. They're shocked because they are the unclean people. We are the holy righteous people and they are unclean. And now you're telling us that we're going to merge into one? Yes, that is what's shocking to them. And even more shocking is what Paul is saying is this. You follow the law to seek out the righteousness of God. But you don't have to do that anymore. All of those sacrifices that you made, Jesus was the final sacrifice. You are now united simply under the faith and the belief and the blood of Jesus Christ. That is shocking to them. Why is it so shocking? Because they were the ones who put him on the cross to kill him because they didn't believe who he was. So you're taking Jew and Gentile, you're merging them and saying all the ways that you used to do stuff, you're not doing that anymore. You're now doing something different with the Gentiles. This is outrageous to them. That is the mystery that Paul reveals to them. Okay? Because, again, it was through the law the Jews thought they could attain God's righteousness. Right? But Paul talks about it in Galatians chapter 3 here. Let's turn there. Because they didn't understand the point of the law. That was the problem, that they never realized what the whole point of God's law. Right? When Moses stands on the mountaintop and he says, I give you the Ten Commandments, Okay? They didn't understand why that was here. They, again, were assuming that by obeying them, they could become righteous and made declared right before God. They didn't understand this. So if, uh, Galatians chapter 3, 19 through 25, here's what it says. What then was the purpose of the law? Again, the law of Moses. It was added because of transgressions, sins, until the seed, referring to Christ, whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator, and a mediator, however, does not represent just one, but one party, but God is one. Just one party. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if the law had been given that can impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. 
But the scripture declares the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised, given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. What was the purpose of the law? The law was meant to prove to the Jews how bad you were that you couldn't uphold the law. It was meant to prove to the Gentiles that you can't uphold the law and you are also sinners. So the whole point of the law was to basically prove how bad you were and that you couldn't attain salvation by simply obeying. And that's what the world still believes today, that if I'm just good enough, if I do enough kind things and enough social justice and treat people the right way, then certainly God will look at me and say, well, you were a kind people. No, because none of us are ever that good, because at some point we all sin and we sin against the holy God that we cannot stand in his presence. So again, the purpose of the law was to say that you are a sinner and you are held captive to that law. And the only way you can find redemption is through something else, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. That was the whole point of the law. And again, the Jews didn't understand that. The Gentiles didn't understand that. And that's what Paul is saying, guys. You are now one together under the faith of Jesus Christ. That's what is so shocking to them. All right, so that's the mystery. This is how God is going to communicate this, right? Now let's continue to see what, what, what he elaborates and expands now on this unity. So let's take a look now at Ephesians uh, 3, looking at 17 through 13. You can flip back over there again. Ephesians 7 through 13. Here's what Paul says. He says, I have become a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all of God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, and here's what it is, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church... The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. And I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings, for which are for your glory." God's eternal purpose was always about his glory. The mystery was, how was he going to do it? And he says, I'm going to do it this way, and I'm now going to tell you the secret that I've kept hidden for long ago, because now it's been revealed in Jesus Christ that both Jew and Gentile are one. They are now unified in a completely new purpose. They are unified in a completely new way. And what is that way? It is the church. That two will become one under the headship of Jesus Christ through his faith. That is the mystery. We are the mystery revealed, the church. And so our purpose is to bring him glory, right? And what does it say? What are we going to do? As a collective body, we are going to show the manifold wisdom of God. 
Now, here's what manifold is. It's a Greek word that means multifaceted. It's diverse. It means varied. So it's like if I was to take a painting and use a whole bunch of different colors, all right, or, or, or take a flower arrangement and put them all together, all kinds of different flowers, and then when I step back, I see this beautiful picture. Okay? Now, people have often said this idea is like understanding a tapestry. Has anybody ever done any tapestry work? Not quite a popular thing anymore, right? I've never done it, so I actually had to look it up. But basically the idea of tapestry, I'm going to show you a video here in a second, um, is that you're basically taking these like yarn and you're just, you're just weaving them together and you're taking all of these individual pieces of fabric and, and when you look at it from the backside, it's just all the bushy stuff that just hangs off and you're like, that's not a picture. But when you turn it around, you see the beautiful picture that was created by the artist. That's what a tapestry is. So, so I found this video clip. It's about two, long, uh, two minutes long. And I want you to, 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 one, observe. Take a look at both sides of the tapestry. And then I want you to listen about how it's created. You guys can go ahead and play that. We just have to make up the story while we're, we're waiting here. <clears throat> the weaver's role is that she does it all from beginning to end. I speak from the point of view of the weaver who invests a part of herself in the work. A weaver sits behind a loom facing the back of a tapestry. As she works, she occasionally looks between the warp threads to see the front of the tapestry reflected in a mirror. She also sees a reflection of the cartoon, a copy of the design being woven which hangs on the wall behind her. When the mirror is turned just right, the reflection is aligned perfectly with the area being woven and the markings on the warp threads. The weaver's bobbin, or brooch, is used like a needle to hold weft and guide it between the warp threads. Each one holds a particular color and hangs from the back of the tapestry ready to be picked up and used again. The end of the bobbin is used to tamp down passages of weft. Or a metal comb is used. To make a tapestry, the weft is woven over and under the warp threads in a horizontal direction. A row from right to left is followed by a row left to right. Eventually, the warp will be completely covered by weft. To weave a passage, the weaver pulls on a heddle to uncross odd and even sets of warp threads. This brings one set forward, and in the space, or shed, between the warps, the bobbin can be guided through. To weave a narrow passage, using the heddles isn't always necessary. Like a harpist plucking strings, a weaver pulls a small group of warp threads forward. The weaver's skill and experience enable her to accomplish not only a complex design, but to create a textile that's structurally sound. Even today, a tapestry takes years to make. A finished tapestry is a celebration, honoring a work of art and the people who created it. Did, did you guys capture all of those spiritual connections there? It's the weaver who works start to finish. 
And that is Christ in our lives. And did you see the backside? The weaver sits behind it. And what do we see? We see all the ugliness. We see the brokenness. And we see the sins of our lives. That's what we see. But see, what is the weaver doing? It's moaning, and it's like a harp. It's plucking, and it's pulling back certain pieces at certain times, and it's pulling on the strings of our heart and the inner workings of the Holy Spirit. And what's he looking at? He's looking at a reflection, and that's what we are being molded into, a reflection of Jesus Christ. Right? We only see the back. We see this diversity. We see the ugliness in our lives. And we always fail to see the opposite, which is the beautiful picture that God is doing collectively in all of us, which is the church. Because when people see the front side, the collective side of the church, they see his glory. And what is it? It's a celebration. Is that how we live as the church? No, too often we fail to live that way. But that's what, that's what Christ is calling us to. That's the mystery. I'm bringing you guys together and I'm shaping you into something that is beautiful. And, and, and I want you to catch this. In this passage, who is the audience? Who is the audience? He said, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. See, we are not just the church to the people on earth. We are not just the church to our co-workers and our neighbors and our friends and our unbelieving family. The angels who are in heaven are looking at us and saying, God, you are amazing how you can take all of these diverse people and mold them into one for your glory. The way, the way that they come together, the way that they love, all based on you. The angels are marveling at us. You know what we are? We're a trophy case of God's glory. Have you thought about it? And I'm not talking like this is just participation award, which everyone gets now. I am talking that we are trophies of excellence and trophies of, we are the kind of thing that somebody works their entire lives for to achieve the ultimate goal and gets the ultimate prize. That's what Christ did by going to the cross. He redeemed us. And then we get put in this case to say, look, Adam was a sinner who was a horrible, wretched man and he found me and he found salvation and look how his life has changed isn't that a glorious thing and then i stand there beside my brother kurt and jordan and my sister karen and together people just marvel at us how does god take a broken group of people and mold them into something beautiful he did it by his blood on the cross that is a celebration that we want to share with all people that is the mystery that Paul is talking about us as the church. And that was God's eternal purpose. This is why it's so glorious. How many of you have seen this bumper sticker? Coexist. How many of you have seen this one? I love that idea. I just love the sense of the world. Why, why can't we all just exist together? Well, see, here's the problem with unity. It's not that everybody promises peace, right? Because that's what everybody wants. Don't get me wrong. I I want peace, too. I don't want people to fight, and I don't want crime, and I don't want hate, right? I don't want that. But the problem is this. They argue that we can somehow be unified amongst our differences. Guys, that's illogical. How can we be unified if we're different? 
Well, Adam, you just don't understand. I mean, we can all get along. Can we? If I promise salvation through Jesus Christ, and Islam is promising it through Muhammad and Allah, and Buddhism says I'll just be reincarnated, and Hinduism says you can worship any god you want, you tell me how we're all going to get along, because in the end, we're all going to different places. It's simply illogical. Well, you know what? We're all Americans. Oh, really? I'm pretty sure this past election told us, yeah, we all may be American citizens, but I'll tell you what, we are not united as Americans. See, that's the problem. Everybody wants peace, but they want peace on their own terms. Because here's really what people are saying. We should all be united, and you should believe what I believe. That's really what we're all saying. But see, what, what, what does Christianity say? Christianity says this. We can't coexist. I'm sorry, but the word of God says that in the end, some of you will face eternal glory in heaven, and some of you will face eternal damnation in hell. That's just the reality. We can't coexist. But even more so is that Jesus Christ does something completely different. He says, you know what? I'm going to promise you unity, and I'm going to promise you peace. But we all have to be on the same page about this. All right, well, what's the same page? Here's the same page. We're all sinners. That's what unites us, our sin. That we all make mistakes, and we are never good enough. That's what unites us. See, if you want unity, we all have to be on the same playing field. And that's what the world doesn't understand. It wants to put everybody different, but somehow united. It's illogical. But, but Jesus Christ says, no, 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 I'm going to put you on the same playing field. You're all sinners. And the same thing that you need for our salvation is me. We're all in the same. That's how we get united, right? And it's simply out of his grace and his love. That's what he does. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave, nor free, nor male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. That's the unity that we have. So the church is the glorious revealing of the mystery that we will proclaim his glories to both the earthly and the spiritual realm. That's the mystery that gets prayed. Now, Paul's not done yet. If we go to verse 14, now Paul's going to pray some things. He says, now that you got it, right? Now that you understand what the role of the church is, now I'm going to pray a couple prayers for you. And here's what he prays. Verse 14. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, for whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derive its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints, the church, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So let me just break this down. What does he pray? He prays, I pray for strength for you. And the strength that I pray is for power. And the power that you get is through the Holy Spirit. Because when you profess your faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit lives inside of you. It begins to convict you. It begins to transform you. And it begins to make you do things that you never thought were possible. Because the same Spirit that we have is the very same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. That is power over eternal death. But too often we fail to live out of that power, don't we? Too often we go, oh, I can't. I can't share my testimony. 
And I'm going to be honest with you, I just confessed in that room back there that one of my greatest fears, uh, one of my greatest problems is fear that I fail to confess. Because why? Because I don't live out of the power of the Holy Spirit. Because somehow I negate what he can possibly do when he raised people. He made this world. God said, I want light. And that's what happened. That's the kind of power we have. But we don't live out of that power. And I'm just as guilty as everyone else with that. He prays that Christ will dwell in our hearts. You know what it means to dwell? Dwell means to make a home. That's what it means, right? When the Spirit lives in us, it says, I'm making home here. And, you know, when I, when I um, got married, we had an extra room because we didn't have any kids at first. And so I, I got to put up all my sports stuff, right? And it was great. And it was like, this is like, this is like my man room, you know? I had my, my, my like workstation and I had my flyer stuff up, right? And then we started having the kids, and then my wife said, now it's time to make it home. And all that came down, little by little, and over the years. I, and, and I like now have this like little section on a wall somewhere, right? But see, that's what happens. Christ transforms us. He says, I'm not here and leaving. I'm here to stay, and I'm going to make it the way that I want, which is in the image of me. And that's what he's praying for in our lives. And then he prays that you will be rooted and established in love. What is rooted? Rooted's a botany term. Right? It's, it's, it's this idea of like agriculture and flowers and plants. And here's the idea. That when we're rooted in the sense of botany, our love sinks deep. It sinks deep into the roots. And so when drought shows up, we don't wither and we don't fade because our roots are so deep that it can find the nourishment that it needs. And, and, and if, we, if we have this love, it's a living organism. Because what does a plant do? A plant grows, and then it blossoms, and it blooms, and flowers. See, here's the thing. If I am not growing as a believer, then there's something wrong in my life, and I have to figure out what that is. Because it is impossible for the Spirit to be working inside my heart and not have something to show for it. And so he prays that kind of love would be working within you. And that word established is an architectural term. That if I was to build something, the foundation would be on a bedrock. The very hard surface, the foundation. And so when earthquakes show up and floods, I don't bend and I don't break because I am on solid ground. That's the kind of love he's praying for in our lives. And my feelings... You know, my love doesn't fluctuate with feelings and circumstances. So when life is good, I'm still rooted in Jesus Christ. And when love is, and when, when life is awful, I'm still rooted in Jesus Christ. My circumstance may change, but the inner contents of my soul will never, will never change because it's rooted in the love of Christ. That's what Paul is praying for. And then he prays to grasp how wide, long, high, and deep his love is. How wide is it? It's accepting. It's accepting of everyone that is willing to change and profess for Jesus Christ. That's what accepting is. It doesn't matter who you were. God says you were always welcome in my kingdom if you want to follow me. How long is it? It's lasting. It's eternal. So when we die and we are in the glorious presence of him, that's forever. And how high? It's an exalted love. That I don't simply escape the perils of hell, but I get to enter his glorious kingdom in heaven. That I'm raised to another plane. I'm raised to another level. And how deep is it? How deep is it? It is the sacrifice of his life and his blood on the cross. 
That's how deep he loved us. And then the last thing he prays is that we would be filled to the full measure. It's like if I had an empty glass and and I said, Lord, just pour your spirit into me. And he just continued to fill it up. And he filled it up. And he filled it up. And he filled it up to the very top. And he said, I have now completely filled you. And what has he filled me with? He's filled me with grace. And he's filled me with mercy and compassion and love. He fills me with every characteristic that is him. And there's no room for anything else. That is the full measure that Paul is praying for us. And then he says, and now that, now that I'm praying for all of these different kind of things in your life, for, for you as the church, I want you to realize that you will now be able to do more than, God, than you could ever imagine. You could do more than you could ever imagine in the power. Do we, do we dream big as the church? Do we? Do we? No. No, we, we, we get this idea that says, I'm going to do this. And then, and then we get home and we're like, I'm going to watch TV, right? And we're like, oh, I had a dream. No, you didn't have a dream. You had a fleeting moment in your mind. A dream is something you chase after and you make it a reality. That's what a dream is. See, we, we don't dream as the church. We think about what the church might be. We think about what his morally may be, but then we settle for everything less because somehow we don't think we can do it. Well, guess what? We can't do it, but I'll tell you what. We have the spirit that can do it. That's where we have to change our mind and our perspective. So his purpose has always been the glory. The mystery is that both Jew and Gentile are brought together into one. It is through the church that will reveal his glory for all eternity. That's what Paul is talking about. Now, here's, here's the problem with this passage. Okay? Here's the problem with this passage. We go, you're right, Adam. You're right. We've got to dream big. We've got to be the church. That's right. This is who we have to be. And what do we do? We see an empty chair right there. Because here's why. We go, this is the job of the church to share the glory and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Go do it, Adam. You're the pastor. That's what we do, don't we? We go, you know whose job? It's the person teaching Sunday school right now. It, it's, it's my mom and Kathy. It's their job. Because clearly, they're religious people because they're teaching Sunday school. You know what? I, I think it was, uh, it was Matt. Uh, and, and who else got the offerings this morning? Who was that? Art. It's those guys because they collect the money. and they can't. They're the ones who are the church. You know, it, it's, it's, you know what? I think it's Peg. It's, it's the lady that plays like the old school organ. That's her job. That's her job. It's the job of the church. That's who the church is, right? See, that, that's what we have historically done. And that's the problem with this entire passage. Because that's great, we can dream. And that's great to say we can proclaim God's glory. But therein lies the problem, is nobody is sitting in that chair as the church. Because why? Because we're always thinking somebody else is going to fill that role. Guys, let, let, me, let me just remind you of something. The word church means ecclesia. It means called out. Who is the church? It's not a building. It's not four walls. It's not the pastor. It's not the piano player. It's not the the Sunday school teacher. It's not the tithe collectors. Okay? It's none of those people. It's everybody. Anybody that professes faith in Jesus Christ has now been called out for his purpose. Therefore, you are the... No, I'm sorry. You are the... Yeah, that's right. And so all of us have a responsibility to collectively fulfill what God's purpose was, which is to bring him glory, right? 
But again, we, we, we fail to do that. So, so um, whose, whose job is it? It's you, Bailey. You should be sitting here. Don! It's you, buddy. That's it, Don, get up here. No, Don, get up here. Sit in this chair. Right? Larry, how you feeling, buddy? Thanks for the Flyers tickets. It's your job to be up here. Susan, it's your job. Macy, Dustin, Art, Jen, Devin, Dwayne, Debbie, Jim, Adam, Adam, Krista, Steve, Bethann, Melissa. Let me keep going. Peg, Kurt, Karen, Estrita, Lisa, Jordan, Bob, Cindy, Andy. Who else am I missing? Matt, Tilly, did I miss anybody else? Who did I miss? What's your name? Sophia, it is your job to be up here. If you, if you profess to be part of the family of Jesus Christ, then it is your job to be sitting here like Don. And Don, it is your job to proclaim the glories of Jesus Christ. Right, true. That's true. Yeah, you hear that? That is true. That is true. That is true. And here's, here's why. Here's why we do it. Because you've got to be thinking, this is so awkward because the world hates us and hated Jesus that it put him on the cross. But here's why we do it. Because I remember who I am, that I was a sinner saved by grace, and I found Jesus Christ, and he dwelled in my heart, and I came to understand his love. And when I understand God's love, I love God in return. And when I love God in return, I can't help but love other people. And when I love other people the way that Christ loved us, they go, why do you love me this way? And I said, because of Jesus Christ. And then those people, we pray, find the love of Jesus Christ and love him the way that we loved him. And when they love him the way that we love him, we bring him glory. That is our purpose as the church. That is our purpose.